0: The road's bad out there, ask anybody, they'll tell you. The worn down asphalt, a WPA project from back in the depression days, disappears into gravel a few miles in, but the road winds on, snaking through the rocky outcrops and dead mesquites. Trees like any other if they've been buried up to their necks in sand, branches like gnarled fingers clawing for purchase in the sky. Canyon walls tower up into the night, shadowy behemoths backlit by the moon and blacking out the stars above the endless banks of the Rio Grande. And that's where you'll see them. The tiny red lights dancing along the sheer black cliffs and bouncing off the desert floor. No one knows for sure what they are, but everyone has a story. There's a lot of things like that out here in the borderlands at night. Things that only exist in places where the asphalt ends, but the roads keep on going. Those unexplainable, impossible things that just are. Keep going, just a little farther and there at the end of that long bad road is a clearing of sand and the scattering of adobe buildings, ever so slowly, grain by grain, returning to the dust.
1: Hidden beneath them are 22 mineral springs, some cold, some scalding, each with a name, some with a few, and all of them the site of countless miracles. For centuries these sacred grounds were guarded by Apache warriors who used the waters to heal their battle wounds. When a group of seven Buffalo soldiers happened to pass through during the war, the Apaches ambushed the trespassers and put them in the ground. But by the time corporate investors from El Paso bought the land, the Indians were long gone. It was the same year the Baker Hotel in Mineral Wells opened its doors, 1929, when the company unveiled their brand new luxury health resort, Indian Hot Springs, built directly on top of the ancient stone tubs and forgotten graves. The resort did well for a while and hosted its fair share of politicians and celebrities. It survived an earthquake big enough to upend the water table and made it through the Great Depression. But nature's garden of health, as they build it, was finally done in by the scarcity of oil. Gasoline was just hard to come by during wartime and Indian Hot Springs was 30 miles from the nearest town. It just wasn't worth the drive. Besides, the road's bad out there. Ask anyone and they'll tell you, and each one'll mean a little something different when they say it especially the resort's nearest and only neighbors on the opposite bank of the Rio Grande. According to folklorist and author Pat Little Dog, quote,
0: There are many who believe that witches are in the area, and girls cry at night because the witches are supposed to come beat them with chains. Spells are cast and countered by brujas, known to every village, and the crows which roost in the mesquite along the river are believed by the villagers to belong to the witches, or perhaps are the witches themselves.
1: A young woman named Jewel Babb, living on her family's ranch in Del Rio, some 400 miles downriver, didn't know much about miracle water, witches, or tiny red lights in the desert night sky, but like any white Texan raised in the borderlands, she
0: knew a thing or two about magic. As folklorist Frost Woodhull detailed exhaustively in his works, he'd be hard-fought to find any white ranch hand who didn't start his best story with, One of the Mexicans on the ranch told me. And Jewel Babb had more of a connection to that world than most. Her grandmother, part Native American herself, spent her long life treating sick friends and neighbors with foot baths and herbal remedies, a fusion of Appalachian and Mexican folk medicine common in the borderlands back then. Jewel Bab watched her grandmother's work with curious fascination, but she hadn't found her true calling just yet, or maybe it hadn't found her, but the two were destined to meet soon enough at the end of a bad road. She married young and her husband Walter was a trapper by trade and a wanderer by nature and he had a penchant for leaving her and the kids alone for months at a time to go on solo adventures all over the continent. Jewel loved Walter, and by all accounts, he felt the same way about her, but wanderlust and reclusion ran deep in the roots of the Babb family tree. In 1952, they
1: moved out to a ranch about an hour's drive south of Sierra Blanca, just a stone's throw from the Rio Grande, and their eldest son Dixie thought it might be a good investment to buy up the riverfront land adjacent to their property a defunct water resort they used to call Indian Hot Springs. The adobe hotel, cabins, and bathhouses had been abandoned for a few years at that point, vandalized, flooded out, and falling into disrepair. But the price was so low, the land alone seemed more than worth the mortgage. Jewel, now in her 50s, spent her days cleaning up around the new property, and she was surprised by how often she encountered folks who'd ventured all the way out to the desert just to find some old hotel.
0: We was just ranch people, Jewel said, and we just thought of as another house, another place to live. I'd heard about the springs, but I didn't believe it. But like we
1: said, she had a curious nature, and her grandmother's empathetic eye for the sick. She couldn't help but wonder, if so many folks with so little to their name and so much to lose were willing to come all this way, maybe there was something to the old wives tales after all, and maybe there was something she could do to help. She struck up conversations with anyone willing to talk inquiring about their ailments and treatments and their lives in general, and she was amazed at just how diverse all those lives were. Some were local Native Americans, scouring the area for medicinal herbs and ritualistic peyote. Some were rich, new-agey types from faraway cities. There were Creoles and Cajuns from way out in Louisiana, and of course, her neighbors from the tiny village of Ojos Calientes on the other side of the river.
0: The more people she talked to, the more she learned, and the more she believed every spring had its own curative properties its own unique purpose whether it was warts fertility issues or erectile dysfunction and the only thing more intriguing to jewel than the number of people who came out was the number of people that left the place better for it whether this was some kind of ancient magic or just the untapped wonders of nature's bounty there was an undeniable power about this place and a power like that was not to be trifled with the springs might have been part of her family property but they didn't belong to her and she respected that. When her husband Walter ventured out to Mexico for yet another one of his months-long, introvert escape trips, Jewel decided to take up residence in the old hotel and spend her alone time experimenting with the waters, muds, and mosses, and doing whatever she could to help the ailing travelers that came through. And she was pretty damn good at it. Before long, she'd earned something of a reputation, and the pilgrim showing up on the front porch started asking for her by name. She still had a lot to learn, but she was starting to think that she might have a knack for this, a gift, you might say. To her, this place was a lodestar for those in need of a cure, and if God in his infinite wisdom brought her to this place, then surely it weren't no accident. But one day, a telegram from Mexico found its way down that long, bad road. Walter had always had a bad heart, but he was a stubborn man, not much for doctors. He died out there, alone in the desert, and now he'd left Jewel to do the same. But fate wouldn't allow her time to grieve. Only a few weeks later, a second telegram arrived, this time informing her that all three of her sons had been indicted on charges of cattle smuggling. The legal fees alone cost her everything she had. Most of the family's land and livestock, her car, everything but the abandoned resort. And still, it wasn't enough. Her sons Irvin and Wayne were each sentenced to three years in prison. And Dixie, acting on the advice of his lawyer, fled to Mexico she wouldn't see him again for another 10 years. Worse still, an unusually dry spring had brought with it a brutal drought, and
1: vegetation in the desert was sparse. The sheep, quote, Dad like flies. But the devastating loss of potential revenue wasn't the hardest part for Jewel. She loved her animals more than anything, and every death was yet another dagger to a broken heart as lonely and lifeless as the adobe walls closing in around her. All she could do to escape the pain inside her was immerse herself in her work, healing the broken and relieving the suffering in others so she wouldn't have to feel her own. Jewel charged a small fee for her services as a healer, but only if the patient could afford it, and most folks she found at the end of the road were just as poor as she was. She took care of them just the same though, compassionately, tenderly, and for as long as it took to make them well again. Healing wasn't a job, it was her duty as God's child here on Earth. But without money for food, it was only a matter of time before he called her home early. But even in a world as cruel as this one can be, kindness still begets kindness in turn. In the months she'd spent honing her gift and building relationships with the pilgrims and locals alike, the villagers of Ojos Calientes had come to think of her not just as a healer, but a friend. Still, border patrol officers were frequent, if unwelcome visitors at the old hotel, and they didn't trust her. She seemed a little too friendly with her neighbors across the river, and the officers took every opportunity to snoop around for anyone who might be on the wrong side of it.
0: But for a lot of the villagers, Jewel was more than worth the risk. There was Valencia who cooked her food and forced her to eat whenever she was too busy healing to remember that eating was a thing she was supposed to do. There was Bacho, her de facto physician's assistant, and Juan, her go-to handyman, who'd recently been forced to flee back across the border as patrol officers and their dogs chased him off the hotel grounds. Halfway across the river, he collided with some rocks and mangled his legs so badly it had to be amputated. But not even a prosthetic leg made of cork could keep him from coming back to her. The villagers of Ojos Calientes, like a lot of impoverished Mexicans in the borderlands, had very little, if any, access to medical care. And there was still a cultural preference to seek out the advice of a trusted curandero in times of need, reserving your standard physician as an emergency last resort. But even then, they were hundreds of miles from any licensed doctor who'd be willing to treat someone who couldn't pay, much less a so-called illegal alien. For the people of Ojos Calientes, and so many others throughout West Texas, Jewel was their primary care physician, their curandera.
1: She personally preferred the term hill nanny, and we have no idea if she'd ever even heard of Don Pedro Jaramillo or others like him, but we like to think they'd have gotten along pretty dang well. With a little help from her friends, Jewel kept at it, and the people kept coming to the springs all day, every day, where she housed them, fed them, treated them, and learned from them and after a couple of years, she was more or less proficient in everything from hydropathy to reflexology. But for every patient who left Indian Hot Springs healed, two more sick folks arrived in their place. It was overwhelming sometimes.
0: I've always had a feeling for the sick, and since my young days, wanted to do all I could for them. Animals too, but this was different. People were brought there, and they would say doctors couldn't help them anymore. In the little experience I'd had with sickness, I just didn't know what to do with them. And here I was, no car to take him out to town, no help anywhere. I was so scared and hurt, and I'd go off and cry. And I said, Lord, now you put me down here with these people, now you show me what to do with them or how to help them get well. And according to Jewel, he did a whole lot more than that. One night, she
1: was giving a massage treatment to a patient suffering from a shoulder injury when the man suddenly winced and told her to quit pressing so hard with your thumb. But she wasn't, she was still prepping her oils several feet behind him. Jewel was taken aback, unsure what to think, but the man's discomfort was undeniably real, even if she couldn't see what was causing it. So she approached him carefully and started gently rubbing his arm. In an instant, with just a touch, he fell silent. His shoulders relaxed and... It was all gone, hurt and everything. The patient drifted off to a peaceful sleep, but Jewel couldn't bring herself to do the same. The incident shook her something awful, so she prayed on it for hours, till
0: the day's exhaustion finally dragged her off to sleep. And then, I had something like a vision. I saw these three little men with something like flashlights and whenever someone was sick, they'd shine their light on it. They were the prettiest men you ever saw. The little men never spoke.
1: They didn't have to.
0: I felt a power radiating from my hands.
1: All she had to do was point in a patient's direction and the little men would shine their flashlights on them and make them well again. She called it mind healing or touching without touching, And over time, she got so good at it, she claimed she could dispatch her, quote, "'familiar spirits' to shine their lights on people a thousand miles away." She was certain the familiars weren't aliens or ghosts, but something much more ancient and powerful. "'I never see spirits,' she said.
0: "'Only the doctors.' And she wasn't the only one who could see them. Similarly described spirit helpers had been a part of Coranderismo for centuries, and although Jewel Bab likely didn't know much, if anything, about the practice, her familiars weren't the only thing she had in common with the likes of Don Pedro Jaramillo. She like a lot of the Curanderos, discovered her gift in middle age by way of a supernatural vision. She never turned away a patient who couldn't pay, instead subsisting on donations and mutual aid from her patients and neighbors. She believed her gift came with a duty, and she didn't see herself as a performer of miracles, but more like a supportive ally, helping the patients in their fight against the illness. It was only by their own inner strength and God's will that they were healed. All she could do was hold their hand and remind them that they weren't alone. Jewel, like Pedro, was a conduit,
1: not a wizard. And if you believe the testimonials of her patients over the years, Jewel's gift, her dawn, allowed her to cure everything from acid reflux to polio. We don't
0: have any sick people down here, she said. Except visitors, they don't stay sick long. We don't have any fat folks, we don't have any bad teeth. If people really knew what we got down here, that bad road wouldn't keep them away. But as the 50s drew to a close, the
1: diversity of folks showing up at the end of that road was diminishing. Mineral water treatments had become passe among the rich and famous, who'd already moved on to the next big thing. Jewel probably didn't miss them all that much, but unfortunately, they were the ones who paid. By 1957, nearly all the newcomers were charity cases, most of them black and Hispanic folks who didn't have the cash it required to make a white city doctor go colorblind.
0: The white people in Sierra Blanca didn't like the Negroes, and the people at the filling stations discouraged them, discouraged everyone from going there. They would say the roads were bad and no way to get there. Ask anyone, and they'll tell you something that sounds a whole lot like an implicit threat. By 1959, After eight years of work and countless miracles, Jewel no longer had enough money to keep up with the bills, and the bankers back in Del Rio had just about run out of patience for the old lady playing country witch doctor out there in the desert. The
1: bank seized the land, and with nowhere to go, Jewel Babb moved out into the desert to find shelter in a rickety storage barn made of old railroad ties. The roof was shot full of holes by decades of passing hunters. It leaked and flooded, rattlesnakes were a constant threat, and the cold desert wind shook the rafters at night. She had to drink rainwater from a tank alongside her few remaining goats, but their companionship, a blessing, was just enough to keep the ghosts of sorrow at bay.
0: I was never too lonesome, and in a way, I was happy. I was closer to God out there in the wilderness. I could understand him better. Sometimes I'd just stand outside my cabin and I'd look across all them hills over to the faraway blue mountains of Mexico and across the great valley of Greasewood, all the same color, green, stretched now for miles, and I'd wonder about my life being tied up in this desert, and I'd think about death, always just a breath away. Then I'd turn around, and there'd be the sunset, beautiful, beyond description, and I think there'll be a time I can step right off my hill and walk right up through it, and maybe I'll just go away that way.
1: For years, she avoided going back to the old Adobe Hotel, claiming nostalgia was bad for the soul, but that's not the whole story. Before the bank foreclosed, Jewel had tried desperately to sell the land, but, well, we'll just let her tell it.
0: One man from Mexico City wanted the springs, said he'd go back to make the arrangements. Getting off the train, he died. Then there was a man from Albuquerque came and wanted it. When he got back to Albuquerque, he died too. Another man from Midland said, I'll put a Cadillac at each door. He stepped outside during the rain and broke his hip. Didn't want none of it after that. And a rich man from El Paso came in a Cadillac. The Cadillac turned over on the road almost. He turned right around and he went back to El Paso. It's never been no good trying to make money on those springs. Finally, some potential buyers made
1: it to the property without incident. But moments before they walked through the door, plumes of black smoke belched from the hotel's fireplace, filling the hotel and blanketing the walls in soot. The buyers told her thanks, but no thanks, and sped off. The mysterious smoke dissipated, Jewel said, the moment their taillights disappeared down that long, bad road.
0: And all this misfortune surely weren't no accident. Indian Hot Springs is a shrine. One time, many years ago, a great deal of land was bought from the Indians by ranchers, and they took these infected blankets from the smallpox camps in El Paso, and they traded them to the Indians for the land. And when the Indians got sick, they all came to the springs so they could be healed. But when they come out the water and they hit the cold air, hundreds of them died like flies right there around the springs. So after that, the Indians covered up the springs so the white men wouldn't use them. And they put a curse on this water. And now, all around in the hills here, you can see these lights up around the springs and the mountains. Everybody sees them around here. The lights are the Indian spirits who died unnatural deaths in this country. Rich men will buy, build it up, and at first, paying guests will come. Then in a few years it would die again. This was a pattern for many years. If it wasn't used for everybody, from the poor that are not able to pay for the baths to the very rich, whoever owns it, something bad will happen to them. Seems they'll die or some bad trouble will come to them, and that there is a curse against this place. We're not the type to believe in curses, but researching this one kinda shook our faith.
1: Granted the death of mineral water towns was the inevitable march of progress. But let's just say an unnerving number of these resorts suffered disastrous ends. And so did a not insignificant number of their owners and prospective profiteers. Even the resorts that didn't end by natural disaster or calamity still went out of business, vanishing fortunes, crippling the economies of entire towns, and ruining lives.
0: In 1895, the spa in Lampasas County was destroyed by wildfire.
1: Wooten Wells flooded in 1899 then caught fire immediately afterwards, consuming nearly every building in the resort.
0: In 1921, the fires came back to claim the rest. Sutherland Springs. Destroyed by floods.
1: Phillips Springs.
0: Destroyed in a storm. Galveston's Seaview. Burned to the ground. Dalby Springs. Burned down, 1925, same year as the original Crazy Hotel.
1: San Antonio's Hot Wells.
0: Hollowed out by flames that very same year, leaving only charred ruins behind.
1: Sixty years later, those ruins caught fire again and finished the job.
0: And those are just the ones we could definitively source. Curranderos like Don Pedro understood that the power of healing was a gift that could never be used in the service of greed. And it sure seems like the profiteers of health might have done well to heed that warning, and maybe they still would. And those
1: same sacred native lands that were stolen, abused, and milked for profit also happened to be rich with another natural resource that bubbles just beneath the surface. One that was infinitely more profitable and maybe just as cursed. As W. F. Bookman wrote, in rural Texas, a cataclysmic warfare has been waged for ages in the labyrinthine caverns far beneath the Earth's surface. Fowler adds, the battle was between great reservoirs of mineral waters on the one hand and vast stores of petroleum on the other.
0: In the mid to late 1800s, Judge Lynch wasn't the only one who dredged up stinky mineral water while digging a well, and most farmers and ranchers weren't nearly as stoked about it as he was, even less so when all that hard work produced nothing but viscous, flammable black stuff. At least sulfur water was still potable enough for their thirsty livestock and crops. And on the flip side of that, nearby wildcatters who'd invested heavily in their oil drilling operations often wound up with nothing but crazy water to show for it. Geologically speaking, if a region has a lot of mineral water, it likely has a fair amount of oil too, and that made for a symbiotic relationship between the two industries. And like we said earlier, the vast majority of those places were in far-flung, rural areas, a long way from the big cities and transportation hubs. The Oilers needed a place to stay and eat and get health care and have some semblance of a social life, and water towns were almost always the closest or only accommodations available. And the towns, in turn, reaped the benefit of increasingly affordable cars and the infrastructure that came with them. But at the turn of the century, oil in Texas was a minor industry. Cattle was still the undisputed king of the Lone Star economy. For several decades, John D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil Company controlled upwards of 90% of all U.S. oil production from its headquarters up in Ohio. And though America's antitrust laws were still fairly weak, they were just strong enough to curb the company's plans for expansion into Texas, leaving the state's vast untapped resources open and up for grabs to whoever could find it first.
1: Sour Lake, one of the oldest mineral water towns in the state, was a major hub for wildcatters who were convinced there was oil beneath a large salt dome called Spindletop. Wildcatters down south didn't have the same kinds of cutting edge drilling equipment Rockefeller did, but they made do with what they had. Mostly just pseudo geology, local hearsay, and even dowsing rods. But the technology was advancing quickly. And on January 10, 1901, after a decade of failed attempts, new drilling equipment allowed workers to punch a hole nearly 1,200 feet deep into the Spindletop Salt Dome, releasing pressure that had been bottled up beneath the surface for hundreds of millions of years. A geyser of crude oil shot 100 feet in the air. At the time, it was the largest discovery of oil in history. Almost overnight, a new industry was born, and by 1902, there were over 500 oil companies established in Sour Lake and Beaumont, including modern giants like Texaco. In less than a year, Spindletop produced more oil than all the standard oil wells in the East combined, reshaping the economy and geography of Texas forever. Houston quickly became the undisputed headquarters of the American petroleum industry, and it still is. Once rural areas along the Gulf Coast, and well beyond it, were suddenly and rapidly overtaken by industrialization and the cattle trade soon relinquished its crown to the new king of Texas industry, oil.
0: During World War II, Dallas-Fort Worth became the US Air Force's primary hub of manufacturing and the beneficiary of all the profits, subsidies, and tax breaks that came with. When the war was over, the state, and the oil barons who essentially ran it, made a concerted effort to ensure that those benefits stuck around. They put their resources into poaching as many defense industry corporations from the North as they could and it wasn't exactly a hard sell. Even back then, Texas was a venture capitalist paradise. Low taxes, extreme anti-union laws, and the ability to keep wages low by threatening to hire undocumented immigrants if American workers refused to settle for an unlivable wage. The oil barons and their cronies in the state house, and by that point, Capitol Hill, had near total control over both the oil and defense industries, and by extension, every other industry that was dependent on them. Needless to say, having that kind of leverage gave them a lot of political capital, and every time those wartime sweetheart deals came up on the national budget chopping block, the oil barons were more than happy to hold America's national security hostage over a tax loophole. In testimony before Congress, the commanding general of the Texas National Guard said, quote, Oil, gentlemen,
1: is ammunition. In defense, oil is a prime mover. Why tamper with a system that has made oil available in such quantities that we have been able to win two wars?
0: And by that logic, there wasn't much incentive to avoid a third. As author Thomas G. Buchanan wrote at the time,
1: We have one of the most powerful and wealthy oligarchies in the world, controlled, as no society has ever been before, by men whose instincts are not those of businessmen but gamblers. I suggest the impact of this fact in any country which possesses the atomic bomb is terrifying.
0: And that brings us to a man named H.L. Hunt. Haroldson Lafayette Hunt Jr. had been an entrepreneur since he was 16 years old, and by age 30 he was running his own 15,000-acre cotton plantation up in Arkansas. But in 1920, cotton prices tanked, and suddenly his once-successful enterprise wasn't worth the dirt it sat on. Hunt was a gambler in every sense of the word, so it's fitting that it was in the middle of a poker game when he overheard some men talking about a big oil strike down in Texas and to Hunt, it sounded like a damn good bet. So he borrowed 50 bucks from some friends and bought himself a well down in the West Texas town of El Dorado. It wasn't a gusher, but it was productive enough, and every dollar that came in bought more land and more wells all over the state. By 1924, at age 35, H.L. Hunt was a multi-millionaire.
1: Most wildcatters started getting cold feet when the stock market crashed, but not Hunt. He kept shelling out cash and buying up land. And it was at the height of the Panic of 1930 that his newly acquired fields in Rusk County struck big. According to Texas Monthly, the field became a lake of black gold, 43 miles long and 9 miles wide, the largest pool of crude oil in the continental United States. By 1940, H.L. Hunt was a billionaire and expanding into the Middle East. During World War II, he produced more oil, here and abroad, than did Germany, Italy, and Japan. He soon established his own oil company, bought several others, and set up his HQ in Dallas, where he built a 10-acre home on the shores of White Rock Lake. It was designed to be an exact replica of Mount Vernon, at least if Washington's estate had been even bigger and had the nation's largest private bowling alley. By 1948, Hunt was the richest man in America. By 1960, he was the richest man in the world.
0: As Texas Monthly put it, quote,
1: If the highest estimates of H.L. Hunt's wealth are true, he was four times as rich as the Rockefellers, and nine times richer than the accumulated wealth of the first 38 US presidents combined.
0: Unsurprisingly, his astronomical wealth got him interested in politics, and being the richest man in the world can buy a lot of favor up in DC. Throughout the administrations of Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon, Hunt was a fixture in White House circles. According to Hunt's PR rep, the tycoon would hit up LBJ with policy suggestions four to five times a week while he was in office. Johnson always thanked him kindly for his brilliant advice, then promptly tossed the letters in the trash.
1: The most powerful people in the world might not have been listening to Hunt's sage advice, but average American voters absolutely were. Hunt and his adult sons launched what politicos of the time called a right-wing intelligence network, including nationally syndicated radio talk shows, TV segments, and printed newsletters. The International Committee for the Defense of Christian Culture, as he called it, tapped into an underserved niche market, and it didn't just strike a nerve in the body politic. It straight up severed an artery. Over the next decade, it would become what was likely the largest and most influential privatized propaganda campaign in American history at that time, at least.
0: Their biggest hit was the radio talk show Lifeline, a 15-minute daily sermon of extremist right-wing diatribes, the freedom talks, as they were called, railed against desegregation and women's rights, advocated nuking China and pulling out of the UN unless America got more votes than, quote, small heathen nations, and routinely told their audience that the press was the, quote, enemy of the freedom system, excluding, of course, any outlets that agreed with them. Hunt never took the mic himself, but his motley crew of reactionary firebrand blowhards definitely would have given Papio Daniel a serious run for his money. Lifeline was notorious for airing racist, anti-Semitic, and anti-Catholic rants, but Hunt adamantly denied any accusations of bigotry. Of course, in a leaked internal memo to one of the show's producers, he told them, quote,
1: It's completely inadvisable that Lifeline string along with a white supremacy group but Lifeline would not want to espouse opposition to a white supremacy group.
0: After all, there's very fine people on both sides. Oh, and also Hunt's show operated for years as a tax-exempt foundation.
1: He and the other Texas oil barons, known collectively as the Big Four, were almost certainly the primary bankrollers of McCarthy's communist witch hunt. And despite his vocal support for candidates like Barry Goldwater and George Segregation Forever Wallace, Hunt denied making any direct campaign contributions. Instead, he'd offer 15 minutes of free daily airtime to thinly veiled campaign ads broadcast nationwide to an audience of millions. Hunt was the 1960s equivalent of Roger Ailes, Rupert Murdoch, Steve Bannon, and Matt Drudge all rolled into one. And his media strategy was simple.
0: Us versus them. There were the Patriots, people who agreed with him, and the Mistaken, people who didn't. The mistaken, he said, were irredeemable malefactors who'd infiltrated every major institution in the country and were plotting in the shadows to take away the freedom, sovereignty, and guns of the patriots. But thankfully for Americans everywhere, rich businessmen like himself were there to, quote, save freedom from the coming tyranny. And like Hunt told his on-air talent, it only works if you keep it vague enough, quote,
1: Don't bother to define what you mean by the mistaken, and if required to do so, simply say. The mistaken are those in opposition to the patriots,
0: whatever the form their opposition takes. It was a groundbreaking and incredibly effective tactic. After all, no one wants to be mistaken. Hunt was the first media mogul in America to truly weaponize the coercive and corrosive power of manufactured tribalism, and he pioneered echo chamber media, self-reinforcing agitprop, and the ready-made commodification of cultural identity politics. At the height of its popularity in the 60s, Lifeline was broadcast daily on 531 radio stations across America, pulling in an estimated audience of 5 million people. Hunt rarely spoke about his own politics in public, but his critics at the time accused him and his media mouthpieces of being straight-up fascist, a term that wasn't so flippantly tossed around back then. For his part, Hunt addressed the accusations once to a reporter, saying, quote,
1: I believe there is no foundation whatsoever for a suggestion that I am connected with or have any enthusiasm for fascism or a fascist movement.
0: Which is cool and all, but also a thing no one should probably ever have to say.
1: Hunt was also a big proponent of the John Birch Society, an influential far-right think tank and not-so-secret society for proto-fascist and conspiracy mongers of the time. He denied being a member himself, but almost all of the Texas oil barons were, and yeah, he totally was. He once complained that President Herbert Hoover had a few too many, quote, socialist tendencies. Yes, that Herbert Hoover.
0: But after falling down the absurdist rabbit hole that is the life and times of H.L. Hunt, we're pretty sure the best summation of his true ideology is a simple quip he once made to a reporter.
1: Everything I do, I do for a profit.
0: And that, at least, he was sincere about. As the radio show was taking off, Hunt decided to branch out yet again and launched a new company, HLH Products, boasting over 1,300 different items, everything from cattle feed to toothpaste. Not to mention, quote, such mysterious products as HLH Rally Hot, HLH Perfection, HLH Tasty, and HLH Ringo. We have absolutely no idea what any of those products actually were, but I'm pretty confident I would eat all of them. If you attended the State Fair of Texas at any point during the 60s, there's a good chance you were hassled by Hunt himself, working as his own booster for the HLH product line.
1: I'm HL Hunt, and I'm the world's richest man, and these are my products, so you know they must be good.
0: Visitors to his booth received a free tote bag full of anti-communist literature, samples of HLH gastromagic heartburn tablets, and a paperback copy of Hunt's own self-published novel, Alpaca his attempt at reimagining Moore's Utopia as Ayn Rand fanfiction.
1: In true Randian fashion, any pretense of narrative disintegrates about halfway through and turns into a lengthy lecture about Hunt's ideal society, one in which the rich would get more votes than everyone else and plutocrats would assign poor people to jobs against their will. Hunt shipped 5,000 copies of Alpaca to George Wallace to sell for campaign funds and also sent autographed copies to the leaders of at least 20 nations who, according to the Dallas Business Journal, gave the book, quote, "...glowing reviews hailing Hunt's breakthrough in political thought." And then, we assume, tossed the book in the trash.
0: LBJ was more than a little cozy with the Dallas oil elites, but President Kennedy wasn't a fan, and that feeling was very, very mutual. In early 1963, Kennedy began pressuring Congress to close the oil barons' World War II tax loopholes, and they didn't take too kindly to that. In the weeks leading up to the assassination, the fiery rhetoric on Lifeline pointedly ramped up, accusing the Kennedy administration of treason and subsidizing communist powers. And the remedy? Quote, Acts of extreme patriotism. District Attorney Jim Garrison, author of On the Trail of the Assassins, and mostly remembered these days as the back and to the left guy that Kevin Costner played in the movie JFK, he claimed the president's real killers were, quote, Texas-style, oil-rich, psychotic millionaires. And at the time, everyone in Dallas knew exactly who he was talking about. Conspiracy theorists like to claim that H.L. Hunt was part of a shadowy cabal, along with LBJ, Richard Nixon, and J. Edgar Hoover to orchestrate the assassination and pin it on Oswald, ostensibly to boost profits for Texas defense contractors by sparking a war with Cuba, or, more realistically, to prevent Kennedy from closing that one tax loophole. The loophole did stay in place till LBJ left office, so I guess it was worth it? The theory's been
1: pretty well debunked and most of the so-called witnesses have been discredited, but the psychotic Texas millionaire's theory is still one of the most popular in conspiracist circles today. Anyway, a few years after killing the president over a minor tax proposal, Hunt got a tip from legendary Texas writer and then Dallas Morning News columnist Frank Tolbert about a foreclosure property out in West Texas he might want to look into. A lot of people say miracles happen out there. Hunt had become something of a health nut in his old age, and the wide open desert did seem like a promising place to grow HLH products brand aloe vera. So in 1966, HL Hunt purchased the place they used to call Indian Hot Springs.
0: With renovation underway, Hunt managed to track down Jewel Babb and hired her to come back to the resort for the first time in years to act as an expert consultant on the springs. Well, that and to provide him with a personalized medical treatment every morning and night whenever he was in town. Fowler described the treatment in his book as, quote, a foot massage for the recurring pain in his groin. We reread that line like 40 times and it wasn't until we read Jewel's biography that we figured out it was a reflexology thing and not a Well, you were thinking it too. For what it's worth, Jewel quote, Always thought highly of Mr. Hunt. But
1: the consulting gig, it turns out, was a temporary one. Hunt was getting too old to micromanage the place the way he liked. And no matter how often he hyped it on his radio show, Indian Hot Springs just wasn't making any money. In his twilight years, Hunt spent most of his time at home in Dallas, paying to have mineral spring water delivered hundreds of miles in stainless steel trucks. He might have been old, but no one could accuse him of being in poor health.
0: In 1972, a reporter from the Dallas Morning News came to interview him at home, and she asked him just how the heck he managed to stay so healthy. Creepin', he shouted. Creepin' is the ultimate form of
1: exercise, superior even to yoga, as a good creep works all the important organs and muscles
0: simultaneously. When the reporter naturally asked him what the fuck he was talking about, the 83-year-old abruptly threw himself on the floor and began crawling around on his hands and knees at top speed, circling the reporter's chair and shouting, I'm a crank about creeping. When he finally returned to his chair, he announced that he intended to become the world's longest living human, vowing to beat the record allegedly held by an unnamed Russian man, whom the Soviet Union claimed died at the age of 167. When the interview was over, Hunt handed the reporter a pamphlet of health tips, a mimeographed Bible verse, and an essay he'd written about the benefits of creeping.
1: I have lots of money, so they call me the billionaire health crank.
0: We'd be remiss as armchair podcast historians, if we didn't point out that (laughs) is literally written out in the newspaper quote. We posted a photo of Hunt creeping on our Facebook and Instagram, in case you were curious, or rather demonstrating the act of creeping, not creeping on our Facebook. But that said, if any of y'all out there happen to be eccentric public figures in Texas, please slide into our DMs.
1: Over the course of his remarkably long life, Hunt had three wives two of which he was apparently married to at the same time, and had 15 children that he publicly acknowledged. Half of them followed their father into the oil and hotel businesses. Others went into right-wing politics. One was convicted of market manipulation and corrupt dealings with the Libyan government. Another co-founded the American Football League and coined the term Super Bowl. And his youngest, Ray Lee, you might remember from our episode, You May All Go To Hell, as one of the two guys who built Reunion Tower in Dallas. Also, Hunt's grandson is the lead singer of the black metal band Liturgy, which is super badass and you should check it out if you like that kind of thing.
0: And again, we fell hard into the Hunt rabbit hole, which is partly why this episode took so long to finish. It's a ridiculous dumpster fire of palace intrigue, hapless criminality, rich kids bungling world affairs, family members suing each other concurrently for literally 40 years and counting, and other true-life reality show insanity. Why does this all sound so familiar? But just real quick, in 1970, two of Hunt's sons were indicted for wiretapping executives of their own dad's company, and Richard Nixon personally offered them immunity if they would hand over to the FBI a list of potential Palestinian nationalist spies in America, which they weirdly had in their possession because they thought the now-dead Libyan dictator, Muammar Gaddafi, was sending assassins to kill them, which might actually be true. Like, for real, The Hunt Family Story is worthy of its own HBO miniseries, and if any of y'all listening happen to be HBO producers, it was our idea.
1: Money please! (laughs) No! But anyway. H.L. Hunt died in 1974 at age 85, halfway to his goal of outliving the world's oldest Soviet fantasy man. His media empire had been steadily crumbling for a few years at that point, ever since he decided to ditch the food canning business in favor of Indian Hot Springs Miracle Cures. But Hunt's death led the company into a death spiral. Turns out that ads for HLH products were pretty much the only thing keeping the show afloat. Left with nothing but the 70s equivalent of my pillow advertisements, the once great propaganda machine quickly followed Hunt to the grave.
0: We don't want to say curse, but...
1: In a column published shortly after Hunt's death, William F. Buckley, son of a Texas oil man and champion of the mid-century right-wing intelligentsia, wrote that Hunt, quote, "...gave
0: capitalism a bad name, not goodness knows by frenzies of extravagance, but by his eccentric understanding of public affairs, his yahoo bigotry, and his appallingly bad manners." pretty scathing for an obituary, but all
1: things considered, we're pretty sure Hunt got the last laugh. After all, Buckley's TV-friendly intellectualism and indulgence of opposing viewpoints is dead and gone. But the conspiratorial us versus them, opinion screaming propaganda that H.L. Hunt gave to America, well, that's forever.
0: Hunt left behind a vindictive and ridiculous will, and pretty much the only part of it that wasn't litigated to shit was his bequest of Indian hot springs to his sons who immediately dumped it as a worthless liability. It was purchased a few years later by a man named Joe R. Brown, and Jewel Bapp once again found her services as a paid miracle consultant in demand. But this time, the gig barely lasted a month.
1: She said the thing can do wonders for people who are sick,
0: Brown told reporters.
1: But anybody who tried to make money off it would fail and have bad luck. Well, hell, I didn't need any more bad luck. Some weird things happen out there at night.
0: He went on to say that he and a ranch hand were driving around the property one night when they saw a tiny red lights dart across a cliffside and erupt into a fireball. Brown shouted,
1: Stop the truck! There's a flying saucer! Let's get it and make some money off it! Stop? Hell! The ranch hand said, flooring it. Brown never found any wreckage of a UFO, and he sold off the property just as soon as he could find a buyer.
0: Indian Hot Springs was eventually bought by a group of lawyers and businessmen who closed it to the public and turned it into a retreat for what Fowler calls the Wheeler Dealers of Texas. A judge in Sierra Blanca once quipped, quote, They could pass a bill out there if they had a
1: governor around.
0: And were still waiting, ever so patiently, for the curse to work its magic. Pat Little Dog, Jewel's biographer, came to check on the old hill nanny in the late 1980s and found her living with her children and grandchildren out in Valentine, Texas. She long ago left that bad road behind, but God kept sending the sick people her way. Whether or not you believe in miracles, the wooden barrel by her bedside, full to the brim with letters of thanks, was undeniable proof of just how many lives she'd touched. But she was well into her 80s at that point still working long days and late nights, often without rest. Sometimes she'd wake up at dawn to find busloads of people parked in front of the house, waiting for the healer to do for them what she did for so many others, cure what no doctor could. But like any curandero, she was only human. She'd always believed that the older and weaker she
1: became, the more power she had to heal, and vice versa. With every sick patient she healed, she gave up a tiny piece of herself, Every miracle, another wrinkle etched deep into her face, like rings on a tree, the mark of her gift.
0: I never get out anywhere, just work. Work all the time, with people who come sick or crippled. I'm tired. Just tired. believe I'll just lock up, just rest and read. And soon after
1: Little Dog's visit, she did just that, but her long overdue retirement would be a tragically short one. In 1991, at the age of 90, Jewel Babb turned to the sunset, beautiful beyond description, and walked right up through it, and hopefully, finally, got some rest.
0: Back in Mineral Wells, the town's economy was teetering on the brink. The revamping of Fort Walters as a helicopter base helped, and the Baker Hotel served as the site for both the Republican and Democratic National Conventions, in different years, of course, but all it did was stall for time. In 1958, Howland Carr's big electric sign, the home of crazy, was unceremoniously torn down and dumped in a Dallas junkyard. Anne Locke Merriweather, daughter of David Galbraith, appealed to the Texas Historical Society to save the struggling Hexagon Hotel, but the funding just wasn't there. It was demolished in 1959. Today, the site is an Easy Mark gas station. The arrival of the 1960s brought with it the interstate highway system, rerouting the flow of traffic out of mineral wells and driving the final nail into the coffin of the town's tourism industry. Seeing the big block letter writing on the wall, Earl Baker, nephew of TB, decided it was finally time to sell his uncle's landmark resort. But it was kinda hard to find anyone willing to invest millions in what most folks saw as a lost cause. keeping the place open was all but symbolic at that point. It was bleeding money, and Earl announced that unless he found a buyer, he'd shut the hotel down for good on his 70th birthday. No offers were made, and true to his word, Earl locked up the Baker Hotel doors on April 30th, 1963. But the locals weren't ready to let the Baker go just yet. Four decades earlier, the town had come together as a whole to make the Baker Hotel a reality in the first place, and by God, they could do it again. And they did. Only two years after its closure, the Baker once again opened its doors. But a lot had changed in 40 years. The mineral water fad was all but a sepia-toned memory from the era of passenger trains and big band orchestras, fondly remembered, but fading. Earl
1: Baker returned to the hotel briefly in 1967 and either took up residence there or just dropped by for one last visit, depending on who you asked. He suffered a heart attack and was found unconscious in his uncle's 11th floor Baker suite. And for all you ghost enthusiasts out there, no, he didn't die in the hotel. And yes, we're sorry for ruining it for you. But we'll come back to that ghost stuff later. By 1972, the unsustainability of the Baker's operating costs had become an undeniable reality, and the doors of the Baker Hotel shuttered once more. For more than 30 years, T.B. Baker, the once greatest hotel man in the South, and his wife May, lived in peacefully quiet obscurity in their quaint San Antonio home. But in 1963, the same year the Baker Hotel closed its doors for the first time, May Crawley Baker passed away. Nine years later, in 1972, T.B. followed her to the other side, the very same year the hotel closed its doors for the last time. With the closure of Fort Walters three years later, after a century of craziness, the town of Mineral Wells became something it had never been and was never meant to be. Just another small town in nowhere Texas. In
0: 1985, the baker was used as a set location for a low budget horror movie called Shadows on the Wall, featuring 80 some odd locals and starring the one and only Wilford Brimley. We haven't seen it yet, but it's definitely the best movie of all time. A year later, some investors from Georgia bought the place, with plans to turn it into a Texas history inspired indoor theme park with each floor of the hotel dedicated to a different era, which is probably the coolest idea anyone has ever had. But sadly, that deal quickly fell apart. An associate of the investors told reporters at the time,
1: There's a mysticism about this building, like a grand old lady. If you come in and do her right, she'll smile on you. Everyone who's touched the building and didn't treat her right got burned.
0: They sold the place soon afterward, but the moniker, Grand Old Lady, stuck around. Over the years, there were appeals to the historical commission, and plans for renovation were announced, canceled, forgotten, and announced again, but nothing ever came of it.
1: The ghost of the town's hope, seemingly trapped within the old terracotta walls, refused to move on, even if fewer and fewer folks believed there was any such thing. For 48 years, the Baker Hotel has stood there, empty and abandoned, casting its long shadow over the world's most welcoming graveyard. The famous water company reopened back in 1989, distributing all four strengths of crazy water to regional grocery stores. We picked up a bottle while making this episode, and it's not bad, a little salty. and Carr's crazy hotel was repurposed into a retirement home, an unintentional metaphor that's just a little too on the nose. According to WFAA, once the hotels and the fort closed, quote, no other major industry has stepped in since. One of the city's largest employers, a privately run prison, closed in 2013. That closure cost the city hundreds of jobs, which is a lot in a town of 15,000 people. By 2017, the unemployment rate was around 10%, nearly twice the state average.
0: While the heyday of spa vacations and celebrity spotting were long gone, the arrival of the 21st century saw Mineral Wells reclaim its place on the list of must-see tourist destinations, albeit for a different kind of clientele ghost hunters rumors of hauntings and encounters with the paranormal at the baker had been making the rounds for decades but with the advent of the internet those stories suddenly found a massive and growing new audience and sure you'd be hard-pressed to find any old hotel in america that didn't have its fair share of purported spooky business but the baker isn't just any old hotel A structure that massive and imposing, abandoned for so long, left largely intact, strangely out of place in such a small town, with such a storied past, and relatively easy to get into? For urban explorers and paranormal enthusiasts alike, that's basically Cebola.
1: So it's hardly a surprise that the Baker Hotel became a top-tier mainstay on every online listicle about haunted America. It's been featured on at least three cable TV ghost shows and countless YouTube videos. And one of the locals regularly hosts weekend ghost walks where tourists can follow her around the outside of the building while she tells them tales of the many spirits that are said to reside within its walls. We originally planned to do a segment here on the ghost stories, a classic best of both worlds thing. Half campfire tale, half historical facts that ruin them, which is low-key the ethos of this podcast. But this episode ended up being a lot longer than we expected, so we're going to save that for our supporters on Patreon. Did we mention that we restarted our Patreon? But we'll get back to that during the credits.
0: We can tell you from experience, the photos you'll find online don't do the Baker justice. You've got to see it in person, in the context of the town itself, to climb the front steps, peek through the cracks in the boarded up windows. And if no one's looking, slip through the open gate by the empty swimming pool and wander the old docking area where some of the most famous people on earth once waited for the chauffeur to pull up in a Rolls Royce. There's just an undeniable power about the place, both ominous and entrancing. Maybe it's just the aesthetic beauty of dereliction. Or maybe it's a supernatural force that lures the foolhardy into a dark world of asbestos and tetanus. Or maybe, when there's that much rich history all in one place, it leaves a mark. Whether that's metaphorical or literal is up to you, of course. But what is history if not the anthology collection of dark, romantic, and grim stories of the dead?
1: Back in the spring of 2000, a writer for the website Techscapes was doing a piece on the alleged hauntings of the hotel, and he spoke to a lifelong Mineral Wells resident and self-proclaimed psychic who asked to remain anonymous for fear she might face ridicule in, quote, such a small town. She told him she'd grown up around the Baker and visited countless times while it was still in operation. After it shut down, she sold flowers on the front steps for a while. When the writer pressed her about the ghost, she told him,
0: The stories are true. The baker is very haunted, but not like we think.
1: The cliche tales of spurned lovers, tragic accidents, and gruesome murders you'll find on the internet or hear on the ghost walks are nearly identical to those you'll hear whispered about any hotel with a past. Archetypes and tropes that are all but universal in modern American folklore, simply retold this time with a Texan drawl. And like we said, the baker ain't just any old hotel. These aren't people who died here, the psychic said. The spirits that haunt these walls are those of hotel guests, celebrities, soldiers who dance with their wives in the cloud room, blissfully unaware that it would be the last time. These were folks who'd found their fortunes in magical water, and the sick folks who'd found a moonshot cure. The ghosts of the Baker Hotel, she said, were those who'd come back to relive forever the best days of their lives, a time before they lost their loved ones, their money, health, happiness, or hope. For some of them, she said, the Baker Hotel was better than heaven, They're the undying and unliving memory of the golden era of Mineral Wells. And whether the ghosts are real or not, they're a testament to everything the town had once been and just how much it meant to so many, how much it still does.
0: To a lot of folks in Mineral Wells, the Baker was both the heart of the town and its only hope for a return to prosperity. But they'd seen owners and promises and plans come and go for decades. And if it didn't happen soon, it likely never would. It had taken a full community effort to build the original Crazy and Baker Hotels, and maybe the only way to bring it all back was to do it themselves, again, together. In 2014, the citizens of Mineral Wells overwhelmingly approved a sales tax allocation, one-eighth of every cent they brought in, to finally make the restoration of the Grand Old Lady a reality. Things were in motion, but it would be slow going, and there was never any guarantee that their efforts would pay off. After all, this was a long, bad road they'd been down more than once before. But as the Texas Monthly put it, quote, something had changed. The people of Mineral Wells were no longer waiting on the hotel to transform their downtown. Stores and restaurants were opening up all over town, even a bar or two. Phil Garrett, former attorney and unofficial town historian, said.
1: We're in the middle of a renaissance right now without the baker. We've seen a burst of energy in the town that we haven't seen in decades. It's the most significant historical event since the discovery by our town's founder of the local mineral water in 1881.
0: It took five years of the community pooling its resources and a little help from some DFW-based investors, but they finally did it. In June of 2019, ground was broken on the $65 million three-year project, and if things go according to plan, the restored and renovated Baker Hotel and Spa will once more open her doors to the world in 2022.
1: Mineral Wells is still years away from being absorbed into the ever-creeping suburban sprawl of the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, and a luxury spa resort in small-town Texas is gonna make for a tough sell to the kind of wealthy clientele the new baker hopes to attract. But in a place as truly unique as Mineral Wells, it just might be crazy enough to work. There's a real magic in that town, and we're not talking about the miracle healing water or the breathtakingly gorgeous decay of a haunted hotel. We mean the town itself, the locals, the small businesses like You Make A Me Hot Coffee Roasting Company, right across the street from the baker. Not only is it a coffee shop and community gathering place, but it's also a gallery for local art, a miniature history museum, and a full-sized old-school video store. With a prop skeleton in the basement to spook you on the way to the bathroom, and some genuinely nice folks waiting to serve you a damn fine cup of coffee when you come back up. That's real magic.
0: When we first started researching this miniseries, nearly nine months ago at this point, it was supposed to be a story about magical water, ghost magnet stuff, and one of our favorite towns in the world. But when the shelter-in-place orders came down, it became something more than that. Not because of anything we did or changed. We didn't rewrite the content, reinterpret the context, or imbue some kind of meaning that wasn't already there decades or even centuries before we were even born. The story didn't change. Everything else did. The history of miracle cures and magnet healers in Texas is, at its core, a story of humanity coping with widespread disease. It's about science grappling with the unknown and the pseudoscience that festers between the gaps in our collective knowledge. It's a story of inept authority, inequitable health care, bumbling bureaucracy and crooked politicians on the take. Of propaganda, polemics and profiteers of snake oil salesmen peddling quick fixes to a public desperate for answers, for hope, for a cure, or, failing that, someone to blame. But it's also a story about the power and potential that lies within even the smallest of communities and grows from the simplest acts of compassion. In a time of so much uncertainty, fear, and anger, there's a lot we can learn from the past, but history doesn't repeat itself unless we let it.
1: And a hundred years from now, between shifts working at the Amazon asteroid mine, a couple of weird dorks are gonna make a space cast called Earth Arcana, about this very moment we're living through right now, and more importantly, what comes after.
0: That story, our story, is still being written. As we sign off this recording, the suffering, loss, and economic devastation are difficult to comprehend and even more difficult to bear. But the courage and compassion, the humanity, we've seen from medical workers and essential workers and everyday folks alike gives us a lot of hope for the possibility that maybe we'll find a more just, empathetic, and better world somewhere at the end of this long, bad road. Produced by us, Ryan Sheffield
1: and Brad Dewar. Recorded here in beautiful Denton, Texas. This show is made possible by Sean Tree, Voltron, Elizabeth Yang, and our other generous supporters at patreon.com slash texarcana.
0: Check it out. We've got t-shirts, exclusive content, and it really helps us out. The more support we have, the more Tex Arcana we can make.
1: Music by Whiskey Folk Ramblers.
0: Additional music by Less Than One and available at freemusicarchive.org. Shout out to Amy from the Grand Old Lady blog. Uh, Your research is incredible, and we couldn't have done this without you. Thanks for everything that you do, Amy. Keep it up. We'll see you soon, and thanks for listening,
1: y'all.